everybody, we're about two minutes away from starting the second half of comedy baseball here at Piano Fight. It's going to be Team Mutiny against another team. Please enjoy how much fun. I'm 
and welcome to weekly review with roman that was a unexpected start I was putting up the other next song to play and didn't want to have dead air in between so we're starting it now and then we'll have some more music in a moment thanks so much for listening and tuning in this is the weekly review with roman we're broadcasting live from mutiny radio we're in san francisco we're on Aloni land and thank you so much for tuning in uh the first song we heard so far today uh, was uh, Denzel Curry with a cover of Rage Against the Machines, Bulls on the Bulls on Parade. So, thought that was a good energetic song to start off with. We have a guest coming in today around 1 p.m. at Shahid Buttar, and really looking forward to talking with Shahid. And yeah, lots lots to talk about. Most likely, I will be playing a teach-in for the first hour of the show today. That was put on by the Center for Political Education. Um, it was a really uh, I just learned a lot. In this and this happened on Tuesday and they had folks who were just speaking about what has happened in Venezuela and in the region and also just a history of US intervention and a lot of these things we were not taught in school so it's important to understand uh, what has happened and what's currently happening and how we can have conversations with folks who support the coup and what we can do to uh, just let folks know exactly what's happening and how to talk about it it was just super informative so I really appreciate the folks who put it together. So I'm going to get that going in just a moment. However, I did ask for music requests <laughs> from some folks and wanted to uh, bring one of those songs up as I prepare myself for the show. Getting in a little bit late. Well, I got in on time, technically. However, not as much time as I would like to have set up as what happens. I'll talk a little bit off the cuff just about things that have happened. Finally, I shouldn't say finally, but however, some more mainstream news has reported, of course, that the Proud Boys and other far-right groups in Portland have coordinated with the Portland police. A lot of folks knew this already. Similar to what was happening in Berkeley as well. We knew how the police departments were protecting these quote-unquote Western chauvinist groups and as going as far as to harass and attack anti-fascists who were trying to get these folks out of their town. So, yeah. Can you tell that I'm back on coffee? I know, it's it's terrible. I had one cup today, and I'm it was very watered down, and I'm still going very quickly. I'm going to bring up an email. You know what? There's no... I don't really have any bosses here, so I can pretty much do and say what I need to at my own speed. Uh, so I'm just going to take my time for a little bit. I think also just the news gets me riled up because a lot of it is things that we already know that people have been saying for a long time and people don't listen, especially people in positions of power. And then they go and they pass laws or do things that are against the people and then bad things happen and then they're surprised when those things happen. Uh, I'm talking about many things. One in particular would be the there's a rise now in, in sex trafficking due to FOSTA-SESTA, which was a bill passed by many politicians, some whom some would say are progressive, but they're really not. Uh, they did not listen to sex workers who were saying, if you take down Backpage and other online forums where folks can vet clients and can look out for each other and can share information, it's, it's safer for people. The more information you have, the safer it's going to be, obviously. And they took some of these platforms down. I know Craigslist got rid of their personals. Backpage got taken down. So all this means is that everything gets pushed further underground and it makes it less safe for for people who are doing consensual sex work and that also makes it more dangerous for for everybody so that's fucked up that's my summary of it there are stories out there 
uh, <laughs> I'll be getting to that at some point. There's a, there's a, yeah, there's just a lot, obviously, in the two hours here, not that I speak for the two hours, but there's just so much happening and there's so much information to share, actual information against the misinformation that's presented by corporate media. So also wanted to... Some positive news. Uh, the teachers in Denver were striking, and the strike is over. They got, I think, 11% raise, so striking works. That's pretty awesome. I hear the Oakland teachers are also planning to go on strike as well. So sending lots of love and solidarity to workers out there who, you know, collective power. It's great. All right. That's my very brief... I think I did have a rant that was planned. I don't even have the energy at the moment. Perhaps I will get it at some point. Um, and that would have to be with Representative Omar questioning fucking war criminal Elliot Abrams. And can you imagine if more people in positions of power actually were to question war criminals? At the very least, I think that should be happening. However, I think so many people who are elected officials happen to be, you know, it's like all these, you know, if the Democrats keep on taking corporate money and supporting wars, of course, it's not in their best interest to to stop or prevent any wars from continuing to happen. So I really do appreciate Representative Omar for, for speaking out and the fact that she can do this. It's, it's more like, why haven't other people done this in the past? And also, at the very least, if you're a fucking, you know, a war criminal, the fact that this person's getting questioned, that, that's like the worst thing that's happened to them. It's, oh, Okay. Okay, I'm gonna get some. <laughs> I'm gonna get the show together today, and uh, I mentioned music. Yes, music. So my friend Shirley requested uh, some Stevie Wonder, and she said uh, anything from "Songs in the Key of Life." So this is one of my favorite songs off that album, and I'm gonna just <laughs> get iTunes all nice and ready. It's taking a little bit of a moment here. There we go. And we'll be back after this. Music is a world within itself With a language we all understand With an equal opportunity Sang, dance, and clap their hands Well, just because a record has a groove Don't make it in the groove But you can tell right away in Dr. A When the people start to move Like Alice ringing out, there's no way the band could lose. 
right and welcome back to the weekly review coming up next we're gonna be, we are going to be playing a teach-in that happened this past week and this was put on by the center for political education so i highly recommend folks check out this organization and donate to them they put on a lot of great programming and it's super important that they're around so a big thank you to them you can find them at facebook uh they are facebook.com forward slash center the number four political education they also have a website as well if you type in center for political education you will uh, find them and also i'll be playing the the audio portion clearly because we're on radio however if you'd you'd like to check out the video you can do so if you you can find it they live streamed it it's at their facebook page again the center for political education so we'll be playing this it goes for a little bit over an hour and then we'll be joined by our guest a little bit after 1 p.m so thanks so much for for tuning in and uh (laughs) let me just get this music down here all right so stay tuned And one moment here as we get everything all here together. And I think we should be all set. Advisor with the CPE. Um, it's all scared. Uh, just so. Yeah. Um, so, um, so my name is Carlos Martinez. Um, I am an advisor with the CPE. Um, I've been active around Venezuela stuff for a long time. I uh, co-authored a book, Venezuela Speaks, Voices from the Grassroots, which was published by PM Press back in 2010. It's now kind of vintage, but I think it's still worth a while. Um, so thank you all for coming tonight. Um, the CPE for folks. How many uh, folks have never been in this space before? First time. All right. It's the first time. It's great. Um, so, um, the CPE was um, kind of born out of this space. This space is actually the 518 uh, Eric Casada Center. Eric was a close friend, comrade, and, and also co creator of the Center for Political Education, um, which was formed in 1998. Um, basically, to create a space for leftists, for organizers, social movement people to get together to have a space to think. Uh, analytically, strategically about left organizers, right? This is, again, in 1998, so this is a time when kind of the left was especially in disarray. Um, so there was sort of a need for that kind of space. And, you know, arguably the left is still in disarray, so we still need this space. Um, so, um, you know, we always like to acknowledge that uh, we have, of course, uh, are on native land here. Um, and in fact, right uh, next to behind us is one of our uh, members of long-time uh, participants and uh, member of the CT is often like to point out there's actually a plaque on the opposite side of this uh, street that uh, marks this as a space where the uh, California Mission was uh, built, right? So uh, that is always important for us to acknowledge. Um, and, um, you know, the CPE has been really uh, active in kind of building up its capacity over the last couple years. We have amazing uh, co-coordinators, Rachel and Isaac over here. Um, um, And, you know, they've been doing amazing work, which needs support. And so, you know, if you didn't get your CPE brochure, please get that. And there are so many ways to throw down and participate and support this really unique space that, you know, obviously we don't have enough of. And so, you know, show some love to the CPE, you know, with that bucket at some point, right? 
Um, so, um, so this event was organized um, as an emergency response to the latest actions uh, that the U.S. has taken um, against Venezuela. And it particularly out of concern that while many of the left have been uh, vocal in their opposition against this latest intervention, we've also noticed quite a bit of silence and reticence to speak about the situation for many quarters of the left. Um, understandably, there's quite a bit of confusion about the situation in Venezuela. Um, the events over the last few years have been very complicated and they're hard to keep up with. We're all busy people, right? Um, and getting reliable and detailed information here in the United States um, can be really difficult, right? Um, but as we'll get into in, in this panel, this confusion also indicates the success um, with which the dominant narrative about Venezuela has been shaped by U.S. foreign policy objectives, uh, which have resulted in a major hostility towards the Venezuelan government and the Bolivarian Revolution. Um, Venezuela is undoubtedly experiencing an unprecedented uh, crisis, and there's a lot of debate within the left regarding how much blame should be assigned to who, to the Maduro government, to the opposition, to the United States. Some lay blame on one of these, some lay blame on all three. Um, and there's a legitimate space for critique and debate within the left about the successes or failures of the Venezuelan government, just as there's a legitimate space for critique and debate within the left about any elected official, right? Um, and that debate is certainly happening on the ground in Venezuela. But my own perspective, and I think the perspective of the panelists, is that the primary role of the left within the most militarily powerful and belligerent country on the planet is not to act as arbiters or as adjudicators of how revolutionary or not revolutionary the Venezuelan government is, right? The role for the left in the United States, that's the role for the left in Venezuela. The role for us here is to protect the space for the kind of lively debate that has actually characterized and been a, a core part of the Bolivarian Revolution from the very start. Um, and this uh, expansion of, demo of popular democracy is a dynamic that actually I documented uh, along with um, my, the co-authors of the book Venezuela Speaks extensively. Um, and people in Venezuela, you know, would often talk about the revolution within the revolution to talk about the, this internal lively critique and debate that has always been a feature of, of the process. Um, so as much as the US, uh, current U.S. intervention is being characterized as a fight against authoritarianism, we, we know all too well that the U.S. has no interest in protecting or deepening popular democracy in Venezuela. And in fact, one of the first casualties of U.S. interference is that it makes internal critique and debate, which is so necessary, very difficult, as the left in Venezuela is forced into a defensive stance against an increasingly hostile right-wing movement with an incredible amount of U.S. support and resources. So we believe that to support the clandestine deal-making, the saber-rattling coming from Washington, the economic extortion that has characterized the latest U.S. intervention in Venezuela is not a valid, coherent left position. We're all too aware of the outcome of recent and ongoing U.S. interventionism in Latin America resulting in the reestablishment of right-wing power in Brazil, Honduras, and elsewhere. And we're clear that the Trump administration's push for regime, regime change in Venezuela is not grounded in humanitarianism, but rather in a strategic effort to reestablish U.S. hegemony in the region. So this becomes all too, obviously pain, uh, too painfully obvious when we see the administration's ongoing support for the one Orlando Hernandez government in Honduras, responsible for widespread and targeted violence of the country's opposition that's led to the wave of asylum seekers that are currently arriving at our southern border. Um, so we believe that it's incumbent upon the left uh, to resoundly resist US militarism and to think strategically about how to do so. 
So to help us in this urgent task, we are joined by a fantastic panel of folks who will be talking about the situation in Venezuela and the forces that we're up against. Uh, so to begin, Carolina Morales is a queer migrant from Venezuela who's been building community wellness and change in San Francisco for the past 15 years, at least. Um, Carolina has worked as a service provider, organizer, and educator with a number of groups like the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, Queer Alliance, the City College Queer Alliance, and the Center for Political Education. Um, and she's been traveling to Venezuela frequently over the last uh, few years. Sofia Cardenas is a Chilean-American uh, paraeducator and graduate of San Francisco State University's Ethics Studies program, um, or college, or college of Ethics Studies program. Pardon. This is the only college. So. Well, right, but hey, sorry. <laughs> I know, I'm like looking at Jason. Um, she participated in a delegation to Venezuela in 2017, where she interacted with a number of food justice organizations, communes, and revolutionary collectives. Uh, she returned to Venezuela in 2018 to spend time with feminist and LGBTQI collectives, such as ASTRE, which is La Alianza Sexo Genero Diversa Revolucionaria. She served as an observer for the May 2018 Venezuelan presidential elections here in San Francisco. Finally, Roberto Lovato is a writer and investigative journalist based at the San Francisco Writers Grotto, whose work has appeared in The Guardian, Boston Globe, Der Spiegel, The Nation, Foreign Policy, and other national and international outlets. He is also a formal political strategist, the co-founder of Presente.org, the country's largest online Latino organization that has been studying U.S. counterinsurgency and destabilization programs for almost 30 years, since the wars in Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua's country war. Sorry if I was talking really fast, but I was trying to get something that out. Oh yeah, thank you. Um, so also, um, we have somebody doing live video of this event, um, of us, not of you, right? Um, that's being posted to the Facebook uh, event page for this event. Um, so we're actually asking that folks not do live video um, because it's already there being done and if people want the video afterwards, it'll be there and available. Um, so if you start doing that, you will be asked to not do that. Um, and yeah, that's it, so. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much for being here. Again, I'm Carolina Morales, and I'm an immigrant to this country. I have the privilege now of being a US citizen. I've been, uh, I think it's been now maybe three years that I've been a US citizen. Um, and also have had the privilege to, to travel on and off throughout the past 15 years back to Venezuela where my parents, grandparents, aunties, cousins still reside. Um, and I, I'm gonna begin by share, giving you more of a kind of personal perspective and also uh, help you humanize what we're talking about because I think in the media, you know, um, the extent of the humanization is more showing protests or then just talking about, you know, giving off all kinds of statements and assumptions about, you know, this is a dictator or this is authoritarian governments or, right? Uh, we, we don't really hear about the, the everyday kind of lives of, of folks down there. Um, so I came here at 17, right? And before coming here, 
the, the reality of what I saw in Venezuela and actually what inspired me to do social change work was that when I would walk home with my dad to the panaderia on Sundays, um, right to the bakery to get bread, um, I would see a lot of children sleeping on the street. Children under 15 years old with no shoes sleeping on the sidewalk around my neighborhood. And I grew up in a neighborhood that is, I would compare a little bit like the mission. So it's um, working class neighborhood, um, maybe not this, you know, extremely working class. They're not extremely low income, but you know, the kind of working class, lower middle class neighborhood. Um, so you can imagine, right, the other neighborhoods that were a lot more low income were really, really struggling. When I grew up, uh, Venezuela had about 80% of the country was living in poverty. Um, more about the reality when I, when I grew up, uh, public safety, which is something that the media loves to talk about in terms of Venezuela, saying that people get robbed all the time and it's very you know, unsafe to be on the streets. Yes, I mean, I got robbed when I was 16 walking to school, you know, by two other young, you know, young men uh, with a weapon. And that was before Chavez. So um, wanting, wanting to paint a picture for you, right, of what I was seeing every day there. Then fast forward to me coming to the US, and that's my own personal story actually around coming out and how that affected my own decision making around staying here. Um, and I started seeing the reality of the US and then the promise that the US was, right? So people talk about the American dream and how great right, the US has a lot of freedom. Everybody lives in like these beautiful homes with like big fences. Everything that I see in Hollywood movies, everybody's white, <laughs> very European looking, green, green or blue eyes. Um, and started, of course, came at 17, started getting a lot more politicized and started understanding what, you know, where the root causes of poverty, right? How does systemic oppression affect uh, folks' lives? And then I had a, a quick also politi politi politicization, politicization um, with my own experience as an immigrant here, uh, right? Speaking English as a second language, having to right endure uh, sexual violence at work because I didn't have papers to work, having no place to turn, a lot of different things. And so with that, we start looking. I start traveling back to Venezuela again, and seeing the differences, seeing that there were no longer children sleeping on the sidewalks with no shoes. Um, seeing that there were a lot of uh, reclaiming of public space and open space. So the plaza, so I had to cross through two different plazas to get to school. And these plazas used to be super run down. The fountains were like completely empty, full of garbage. Everything was just really run down, um, smelly, uh, again, more folks sleeping in the plaza, adults sleeping in the plaza, right? Homeless folks. And coming back, I didn't see that. Actually, the plazas were reactivated. Uh, playgrounds for kids were installed. 
there were families actually hanging out at the at the plazas. They're active, and they continue to be. Because I just went back again in December and came back on January 5th. Um, and then we see also in terms of housing, right? Connected connected to this reality, I have a friend of mine who is the executive director of one of the biggest theater um, theaters in Venezuela, the Teresa Carreño, right? And he, um, number one, he's the, the first um, Afro-Venezuelan who is running such a big artistic institution. And he's a working class Afro-Venezuelan. And so that already is a huge, uh, huge advancement. And he's a young man running such a, such a big institution that used to be basically where the opera and the ballet uh, took place, right? Where only the elite would go, which I remember, you know, I, I started doing theater when I was 11 years old at school. And I remember having only been able to go to the Teatro Teresa Carreño, to this theater, twice in my whole lifetime because Ballet was something that was not very accessible to everybody. It's not very appealing to all communities, unless you're right of a certain background sometimes. Um, and also everything was very expensive. Um, and now, when you go to El Teatro Teresa Carreño, so first, if you can imagine, the theater has, a, it, the architecture is beautiful. So it's really large and a, a lot of open spaces. Um, it doesn't have a roof except for you know the, the actual salas, the rooms, the room. Yeah, the theater, the theater, the big stages. Those have um, uh, a roof. You walk through. There is a lot of air, a lot of trees, and a lot of open space. Now, when you walk through it, it's actually activated. There are tons of groups, uh, theater groups, dance troupes from uh, hip hop dancers, to break dancers, to modern dancers, dancers, to different ethnic dances from Puerto Venezuela, but also from the immigrants that we have of other countries, also practicing, just in the open space, taking space. So there is a, a, um, a big thread there, right, around making sure that, that the spaces for the public are actually being utilized by the folks who really uh, also needed most. So Irving in, in Teatro Teresa Carreño has been bringing a lot of um, Afro-Venezuelan group culture into the theater and really uplifting that instead of only uplifting um, European arts and culture, right, like ballet and opera. And he, um, he grew up very, very working class and now guess where he lives? He lives in one of the many housing complexes that the government has uh, developed for uh, for working class people, where you get your home for free. It's not a commodity; you're not allowed to sell it, right? But you can give it to like your your children, to the next generation, yeah, um, or to a close family member in the next generation. So it's it's really beautiful to see those stories, to see the reality of how how people are living every day and counteracting this idea that people are unhappy or you know, dying on the sidewalk of famine, even just using the word famine just drives me, drives me insane. One more thing I know, 
I said he's gonna kill me. Uh, one more little thing. Um, so an another example to me that just came to me last night actually because I had been next door yesterday until 9 p.m. And just walking down to Mission Street, I was freezing. And this is not this is not like New York. And I was freezing. My fingers, I couldn't feel my fingers. I was trying to use my phone and I couldn't, like my phone wasn't even recognizing the tips of my finger. It was so weird. My feet were so cold. So I was just thinking about all the folks that are living here on the sidewalk, in the richest city in the country, in the richest country in the world, right? And then thinking about the fact that the Venezuelan government through Citgo, which is the oil company, that now has all of its accounts frozen thanks to Trump, right? Where we're not being allowed to access up about $3 billion, right? Or more, $7 billion. Um, $7 billion to Venezuela. That same company every year during the winter has been donating oil to communities in the Bronx because they don't have access to heat and people die of how the freezing temperatures. So that's the kind of dichotomy that we're talking about tonight. Um, and I just wanted to kind of paint that picture a little bit for you to start off. Yeah, so that's great. Um, I think that my goal speaking here today was sort of like challenge us as a leftist community and including myself, um, challenge our anti-imperialist analysis and hopefully make it stronger so that we can be stronger um, in all of the different work that we do. And when we come together in spaces like this in solidarity uh, for countries abroad. Um, I wanted to read just a quote from a newspaper. It says, uh, the government is to ration food uh, in an attempt to overcome shortages that charges have been created by political opponents in the hope of overthrowing current president. Finance Minister Fernando Flores Labra on a nationwide broadcast last night accused opponents of the leftist government of creating a black market to prepare the way for the president's fall. And I'll read this one. The next three years saw a steady erosion of support for his government as president was forced to turn from his goal of reforming society to an increasingly desperate attempt to hold on to power. So that sounds a lot about what we're hearing about Venezuela. But those are quotes from the New York Times in 1973 about Chile. <laughs> so the, you know, Maduro is not a... And welcome back to Weekly Review. Had a bit of a technical glitch for a moment. Hopefully we should have everything working again in just a little bit. And again, we're listening to the Center for Political Education put on an emergency teach-in about what's happening in Venezuela at the moment. So hopefully we should have everything this government up to. of creating a black market to prepare the way for the president's fall. And I'll read this one. The next three years saw a steady erosion of support for his government as president was forced to turn from his goal of reforming society to an increasingly desperate attempt to hold on to power. So that sounds a lot about what we're hearing about Venezuela, but those are quotes from the New York Times in 1973 about Chile. <laughs> so the, you know, Maduro is not a... And um, again, we're having some kind of 
technical difficulty. We're going to play a bit of music as we, I'm going to try to get this all worked out. So stay tuned. Ah. 
welcome back to Weekly Review. We are working on some technical difficulties right now. And here we go. We are listening to an emergency teach-in that happened, that was put on by the Center for Political Education this past Tuesday. So we're listening to the audio portion of that. You can find the video for this if you go to their Facebook page, which is at facebook.com forward slash center, the number four political education. And let's go back, I believe when we stopped, they were speaking about a quote from the New York Times, which could very well describe what was happening now and was actually describing what was happening in Chile in the early 70s. That we're facing right now. So the Chilean left has never recovered. Um, it's, we arguably have an entire generation that's disappeared. Dances from Puerto Venezuela, but also and let's one moment please just and one moment here thanks for bearing with us just waiting for the video to catch up here to where we were and again you're listening to mutiny radio I'll do a brief plug while we uh, wait for the video here to catch up. Mutiny Radio, there are shows here every day of the week. You can have a show here of your own if you'd like. Check out mutinyradio.fm for open slots. And again, check out our, our schedule. There's shows here of every variety. There's music, there's spoken word, there's poetry, there's comedy, there's politics, anything and more. And if that's something that you would like to do, again, please check us out. There are slots available for you to do a show here of your own. It involves getting trained, pay monthly dues, and then you get a show here. It's pretty incredible. And, oh, we're doing so well here. It's getting this, uh, and for some reason, having some issues. But we'll, we'll get this going as soon as possible. Thanks for your patience. I'll also, it's probably much more, I don't know if it's more annoying for you than it is for me, but it's pretty annoying for me right now. So uh, I do like to be able to put on a, a nice packaged show. It's never quite polished because we do kind of put things together as we, as we can. And at the same time, for your listening enjoyment, it's nice to have things play as they should. So, all right, I think this is where we're at. And yeah, I'll be back uh, uh, in a little bit. Saw a steady erosion of support for his government as president was forced to turn from his goal of reforming society to an increasingly desperate attempt to hold on to power. So that sounds a lot about what we're hearing about Venezuela, but those are quotes from the New York Times in 1973 about Chile. <laughs> so the, you know, Maduro is not a. Oh, oh my goodness. I am. Okay. We see sort of the systemic assassinations of indigenous people and uh, leftist students, and and we still have people living in temporary housing from the 2008 uh, earthquake. Mm-hmm. So it's just trying to highlight that you know those that that lasting effect of a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Um. Sorry, I have to be prepared or else I lose myself. She's um, great. She's great. 
So the dictatorship was too long, but the long-term effect was that it, we have a country, and many countries in Latin America, that are still um, sort of dictated by the United States. Uh, more recently, we saw this uh, a similar situation in Haiti, where Haitians are uh, historically viewed as uh, abolitionists, black internationalists, and are uh, celebrated for Pan -African, their Pan-African solidarity model. Um, and it's influenced revolution in South America, the Caribbean nation, and Europe. Um, I recommend people read something called Evolution of a Coup by Mia Imara. She's a Haitian uh, writer. Um, but same sort of thing. And from April to February in 2003 to 2004, uh, the president there was demanding reparations from the French and calling for restitution for the world's descendants of slaves. And by February 29, 2004, we saw that president kidnapped, and we saw a president, uh, Gerard Latortu, I'm so sorry if I mispronounced that, um, named president. We saw a similar thing in Honduras. So I guess I kind of wanted to bring those things up to show that it's not something that happened in the 1970s, it's continuing to happen, um, but it's, we're, we're seeing it through a more psychological warfare. And what I mean by that is that here in the United States, we're getting sort of, um, we're getting articles that are written by people with the resources to write articles and publish them in the United States. So there's a really sort of disturbing invisibilization of people in Venezuela. I want to speak specifically to Afro-descendants, women's voices, and LGBTQ folks because we're, we're here. I, I know I personally feel that almost everybody has access to um, a computer all the time or a smartphone maybe or even a, a phone at least that takes pictures. But in Venezuela, a lot of the grassroots organizations that I worked with, people were functioning on Nokia phones. So if you don't have sort of like access to be able to publish those sorts of things, they don't get to us. And so we see a lot of opportunism uh, by the opposition and even parties that position themselves as third, as third options, um, taking advantage of uh, moments of tension like this coup to push push their agendas. And so I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. But. Yeah, I mean, I thank you so much. That was super powerful. Thank you. I mean, something I, I wanted to connect with that um, is precisely, you know, the, the levels of poverty did not have not allowed for a long time to for people to have access to technology. And one of the big programs that, that Chavez implemented was actually in the schools giving kids in public schools access to canainitas, which are these like uh, small laptops where kids could connect to the internet and start practicing their skills around using a computer, right? And then there was a version then for, um, for, for the, the youngsters, right, in middle school and high school um, where, where the laptops were a little bit bigger and they had a little more capabilities. But that was, right, some, and, with that, he also used the opportunity not only for young folks to have access and skills around technology, but he also used the opportunity to have the workforce in Venezuela uh, assemble the, the laptops um, on, on the ground with, with parts from China and different trade agreements with China. Um, and just another piece, you know, speaking about other countries, another big piece and contrast that, that I have uh, that is very connected to my work. I've been doing work around human rights uh, for many years. And in Venezuela, when I was growing up, 
anybody who was from Colombia, from Ecuador, uh, mostly Colombia and Ecuador were the kind of uh, largest groups of immigrants from from Latin America, right? The other immigrants came from Europe, from Portugal, Portugal and, and Italy and Spain, obviously, because it's the colonizer. Um, so, the, with the folks that were from Latin America, the attitude was always, oh my God, these are all the criminals. Look at all the criminals getting in here. They're making our country terrible. What's that sound? <laughs> with Chavez, he actually made sure to start changing those attitudes, talking about that, talking about how we were brothers and sisters with other folks in Latin America, and started to basically provide documents to folks. And until today, what we hear from the right wing, and, and I, I still get comments on Facebook from the right wing talking about how part of the fraud in the elections is all the Colombians that have IDs. Yeah, thank God they have IDs. Don't we want every single immigrant here in the US to have IDs? Well, I guess not if you're a Trump supporter. So this you know, continues to kind of show that the kinds of people, the dichotomies of what communities are asking for what, and are, right, what kind of discourse they have about, about people and about what voices mm -hmm. do we get to hear. Yeah, so um, I think that it's just important that we challenge ourselves to find um, articles and statements written by organizations that align themselves with the people of Venezuela, not who are working in Chile, who are working in Brazil, or working in Argentina, um, but people on the ground. And you know, we can share with each other those sorts of resources when we find them. Um, because for example, I'm not seeing posts posted by La Raña Feminista, which is a, it's a feminist collective that has sort of like cells, I guess you could call it, um, in all the large municipalities in Venezuela, um, Afropatria, which is a, a Chavista Afro-Venezuelan organization, um, Trenzas Insurgentes, Centro de Saberes Africanos, um, just you know, just to name to name a few. Um, and then the last thing I want to challenge us to and challenge myself to is uh, how are we going to define autonomy, sovereignty, and respect the constitutions of other countries? Um, and so. The Venezuelan opposition is a minority. Hopefully we know that. They're, they're a minority, but they're a vocal minority because they got money and money talks. Um, the consensus for my interactions about the situation right now is that no one, even leftists in the United States, has the right to call a plebiscite in another country or to say, we can fix this if you guys just had an election. And the, the reason I bring that up is because the Venezuelan Constitution specifically Article 72, 233, and 234, speak directly to the right to recall any elected official in Venezuela, whether that be in your state, you know, in your town, all the way to the president. Um, and then the characteristics and responsibility of a president, as well as the characteristics of a president that is no longer uh, working, right? So that's already written and spelled out into the Constitution. Something I love about Venezuelan people is that even the little grandma She's got her constitution in her back pocket. Like that was so inspiring to me because here, out here, the strategy of oppression is to make sure that we don't know what that constitution says. The laws are written in a language that I don't speak, even though it's English. And whereas when you read the Venezuelan constitution, if you if you're a Spanish speaker or maybe you can find it in English, it is super to the point, 
anybody who can read can read it and understand it. Um, and I also just wanted to point out that Guaido, even though he's announced himself that he is the president and he is the constitutional uh, president of Venezuela, has already broken uh, parts of, the own, of his own constitution, of the own country that he is claiming to represent, um, particularly section 13 of 233, where he is making proclamations without the approval of the National Assembly, which is particularly ironic because the National Assembly is currently under control of the opposition. So it sort of uh, highlights the fact that this guy wasn't even talking to his own people when he made this proclamation because um, I mean, today, it was funny, I was talking to, um, what's it called, uh, Carolina, before I sat down, that I read that this woman, Blanca Moreno, who is a, she's a diputada in, ah, yeah, uh, Blanca Rosa Marmol, she is a uh, opposition party member of the National Assembly, and she announced today strong critiques of Guaido, um, saying that he is bluntly disrespecting the order of power by proclaiming himself president and is not following constitution is not following the constitutional law or uh, or and she's not recognizing him as an official. So I just think that we also need to recognize that that this guy is like obviously a puppet of the United States because even this opposition project is just like who are you? You know, and maybe, maybe you know, a lot of us already like to deduce that, but I just thought it was a really interesting thing to see this lady who, you know, last week or three weeks ago was like super anti the government, and then today is just like, well, not this guy though. You know, so it's it's kind of just like if I feel like when the right wing is even saying we got to respect the constitution, I mean, that's just like it's, it's that. So I don't have anything else to add. So we're going to shift to the Roberto speaking. Uh, before actually he does that, I would. What's that? Oh, oh yeah. That's right. um, <laughs> um, I want to make sure that uh, I actually want to explain kind of what our thinking is in terms of the format of this event um, so that this isn't just like a one way conversation. After Roberto uh, does his thing, uh, we're actually, we, we slotted in time about 20 minutes for folks to get into small groups with each other or pairs or whatever to actually have time to talk about, not posing you know, some, some motivating sort of thoughts or questions. Um, but really just to talk about what are still some questions that emerge for you out of kind of what you heard, um, but also um, what are the ways that you can bring this back to your own work, right? Um, so, you know, whether that's anti-war work or immigrant rights work, what are the ways that we can bring an anti-imperial, you know, anti-intervention lens to your works, particularly in this moment around Venezuela. Um, and then after that, we're gonna have more time to kind of uh, dialogue with the folks up here as well. So with that, Roberto. Uh, thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Carolina and Carlos and Sofia for inviting me. And thank all of you for being here an important, uh, at an important moment. Uh, I think I'm here because a lot of reasons, one of which is I care about the kids in Venezuela and I care about the kids here because they could send kids here to die and kill in Venezuela. And I think we have to be clear on the stakes here in the United States for us, for our kids. Um, on a lighter note, uh, I was, uh, everybody's telling a personal story and I just had the great bad fortune to follow two powerful Latino women. so. Bear with me. <laughs> um, 
Uh, I actually, I'm glad to be at the Eric Casada Center because I knew Eric Casada when we were kids. He and I played on my brother's soccer team, which my super brilliant, politically inclined brothers called Club Conquistadores. <laughs> I used to bother Eric about that, and uh, you know, Eric was always anti imperialist, but not in soccer. <laughs> so, and, yeah, I, I would say this when he was alive, so I'm not shaming his death. So, and I, you know, I, I grew up on Folsom Street and used to go to church down the street on Valencia, evangelical church, right wing Christian, a working class kid, and we used to have fold up chairs like this. It's kind of redeeming for me to be here, not be an evangelical Christian, have four different chairs to, for a different thing. So yeah. um, let me get right to it. I got a lot of ground to cover. So um, yeah, from, from, from Lentia Street and Folsom Street, I went on to travel the world and travel the hemisphere, first because of solidarity and then because of uh, my journalism work. So I'll be speaking largely as a journalist, and maybe you'll see uh, a little bit of the former activist in El Salvador and other places. Um, I'm talking about the Venezuelan matrix, golpe suave, golpe mediático, golpe duro, golpe alma Um Next. So there's going to be three questions I'm going to ask you to just think about, because that's what I'm going to speak to. What are the similarities between now and previous schools in America Latina? Second, what's the difference today? We have to be poets, all of us, because our language has to be in line with the time. We can't just take the dead tropes of the political past. We have to learn from the past, but there's a current moment that has particular realities we have to face as, that you all have to face as political people and me as a journalist. This is being recorded, so I got people watching me sometimes. So. <laughs> uh, and then third, what does it mean for those opposed to US policy? Next. So my goal basically is to share with you what I've learned as a student of U.S. destabilization and intervention over 30 years. And this is a, an example of a, you know, people with experience in America Latina know what happens when there's a coup attempt. It's been so common for more than 30 years, if you include Guatemala, etc. So there's a deep knowledge, and I think, I encourage you to factor that in, because that gives you hope that people know how to deal, too. Because they are experienced people. Uh, next. So what are the similarities? So there you see, I'm glad Sofia was talking about Chile, because there's some clips I got from Chile. Chile sin pan, paro de camioneros, gran paro nacional, emergencia in Chile. Does that sound familiar? Yes. This is absolutely familiar. In imaginative ways, because they are adversarial. Yeah, if you want to go ahead. Oh, Chile without bread. Anybody, anybody here not speak Spanish? Okay, Chile without bread. Chile without bread does not mean Chile sucks, okay? It means Chile without bread. No. Yeah. This side. Emergency in Chile. Emergency in Chile. Violence because of political violence. Like this is all targeting uh, the Allende government at the time. Next, please. So, the rationales, they're very common. Taxis of evil. Lots of evil. Lots and lots and lots of evil. Right? So here you have George Bush announcing the access of evil. There you have the weapons of mass destruction. There you have the CIA confirming it. There you have the man who came up with the idea of the access of evil. John Bolton. Okay, next. The rationale hasn't changed. Neither has the political imagination. And this is actually, as I say, these people don't have 
of Greek political imagination in many ways. Look, they just basically cut and paste axes and put in troika and then tyranny instead of England. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and I want to be clear, this is not a Republican right-wing agenda. Barack Obama has done, when I was there, has done an incredible amount to destabilize the government of Venezuela. The Democratic Party supported it. These are bipartisan efforts. When the empire goes out, hey, you know, they are of one mind because the powers that be work that way. Video, please. So. Really quick, that they're using Elliot Abrams again, even though, even though he lied about El Salvador, he like it's not working. Uh, I just want to show this clip of Pompeo. Anybody see the interview with Pompeo? Well, let's just skip it because it's taking too long. The connection's not strong enough. So there's a clip of there's an interview with Pompeo, the Secretary of State, former head of the CIA. Saying basically there's a Hezbollah sightings yeah. in Venezuela. <laughs> I, as a journalist, went to investigate and reported my fears at the Orlando Sentinel. Huh? Hezbollah. Hezbollah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Everybody knows Hezbollah. Yeah, so there was a sighting of Hezbollah in. But there's been sightings, all these things. These should be these loony ideas. Back in the day, it's kind of funny, but it's kind of not because a guy named John Kelly, the former chief of staff for uh, uh, Donald Trump, and uh, the head of the Southern Command for Barack Obama, started us on the path to explore, quote unquote, Middle Eastern terrorist connections in the Americas. Journalists had questioned these findings. They come up every so often when the Southern Command needs a budget. Okay, because of the Central Command of the Middle East. Right, so um, all to say, there's never been any proven certifiable anywhere cited except, you know, kind of Lebanese farmers, descended farmers in, in the countryside. Next. Again, you have the same, the same actors, Elliot Abrams, special assistant to President Reagan on Central America, and Central, uh, special assistant on mass murder as well. Next. So uh, there's also this similar moral justification for militarization. In the case of Nicaragua, you have Elliot Abrams using humanitarian aid. You'll see this in the news. Uh -huh. You know, and what happened? Abrams got caught with uh, weapons, using weapons, using humanitarian to deliver weapons mm -hmm. to the Contra. So some of us are saying there may be, a, it's, it's kind of understand, you could put a Contra frame on this, so there's definitely a Contra kind of frame. Next. There's Elliot Abrams again with a guy I met, David Smolansky, who's now with the Organization of American States, charged with immigration. Go figure. Because of this guy, I almost got killed. I can't share it now because I'm rushing. <laughs> the moral justification for militarization in the case of Venezuela, humanitarian aid. It's very useful from a strategic standpoint to use humanitarianism. Why would that be? Why would that be? We like to feel good. What else? How does it make your adversary look? Bad. They don't want humanitarian aid. So you see, it's 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 a very smart, tried and true method uh, to use humanitarian aid for military. Next, 
Operational slapping is, thank God these guys are really some. Okay? This is Eugene Hobson. Does anybody remember him? Some of you all with less darker hair than others might remember Eugene Hobson. Anybody? He was a pilot caught flying bombs into the, into Nicaragua. His plane got shot down in Costa Rica and he was arrested by the Sandinistas transferring arms. Well, guess what? We just had a report that there was a Venezuelan, the Venezuelan military caught arm shipments from, uh, from South Florida. From Florida. Yeah, I would, you know, there's also stuff going on through Colombia. Next. Massive funding for destabilization program. I really focused a lot of energy on this. I wish I just had the time, but we have AID, National Endowment for Democracy, International Republican Institute. Next. Something the media is forgetting, and something we cannot forget. There ever and always has been and always will be a covert operation component to destabilization programs. That's textbook. They'll teach you at West Point where I've been. They'll teach you in left circles where I've uh, interviewed people. So, uh, so you have the Southern Command, the NSA, and back up this. CIA and uh, where a lot of the action right now in Venezuela is at the Naval War College, I'm told. Next. Same political ambition, dismantle the state, eviscerate the entire government. They sometimes have political ambition and imagination. So during 2002 coup, when they tried to depose Chavez, they did for a day and then the Venezuelan people took it back. They dismantled the Constitution, they dismantled every branch of government. Some of the players who were involved in that in Venezuela are also involved now. Like a guy, I was doing an investigative story named Roberto Lopez. Next. This man, he was a, a mentor by Roberto Lopez, uh, Juan Guaido. Uh, same thing, he's trying to dismantle the entire government, nothing less. Except he's got the help of Donald Trump's tweets. <laughs> which are kind of a joke, but like if you talk to people that know media and communication, Donald Trump is the greatest publisher in world history. <laughs> no, no, that's no joke. It's real. It's very real. It's a sad reality. Next. Economic sabotage. Chile. I wish I could go into it, but next. Economic sabotage in Venezuela. Unlikely crime against humanity. This is the guy I actually met. Uh, Alfred de Sayas. He basically is the, was a special rapporteur up until 2017 uh, to, from the United Nations to um, <coughs> Venezuela. And he determined that the US sanctions were, quote unquote, unlikely crime against humanity, which should be investigated in international courts. <coughs> so when you see these images of Venezuelans starving or whatever is going to come and whatever is already happening, it has a component that is domestic. There has been corruption in Venezuela. There has been uh, over-dependence on oil and other problems. But there's also been an open, over-destabilization effort through, um, through, you know, sanctions. And God knows what's, and some good investigators know what's going on under the surface of the economy to destabilize and sabotage. It's standard operating procedures. I, I challenge my journalist friends all the time on Twitter. Dude, where are you on covert operations? Don't you even investigate this? Nobody is, by and large. I'll get into that in Q&A. <laughs> I can say that because I know it. Next. <coughs> US funded mass mobilizations. You got the example of Chile? 200,000 anti-marxists in Chile. Next. 
US funded mass mobilizations. You have the same actors, same institutions. 20 years, tens of millions of dollars in US aid, just in Venezuela. Venezuela's opposition is hands down the greatest recipient of US destabilization dollars ever. Okay, next. US funded mass mobilizations. You see them on the news. Well, they've got basically like destabilization welfare going on in Venezuela. Next. Paramilitary operations, standard operating procedure, savvy? This is what we found out after it happened in Chile. You get reports. Next. Violent paramilitary operations via political parties. In the case of Chile, you had a group called El Frente Nacionalista, Nacionalista Patria Libertad. I have friends who were uh, killed by these people and whose families were killed. Uh, next. In the case of El, El, El Salvador, that's another country I know really well. Uh, Venezuela is it's Voluntad Popular, uh, founded by this man, Leopoldo Lopez, who's in jail, who is the, some say, the godfather behind the eminence, preeminence behind the scene of Guaido. And um, uh, I got a lot of trouble right this way, let me tell you. Uh, they, they sponsored these things called Guarimbas, which are were violent protests in the city where they did a few things that I'll show you next. Violent mm -hmm. operations by a political party. You have people like this young man here, look at what he does. Look what he says. Next. This is a member of the Voluntad. No, sorry, we'll back up if you want the video. You have this young man here. Oh, we don't, I mean, do you want to hear his voice? Yeah. You saw his face, do you know who he is? Maybe somebody can read, maybe like the captions, if you want to read the captions. You know who this is? Yeah. We've been here for five hours, but I think we've been the people. If you look down there by the highway, there are also many people resisting. I remember 2007, we shouted students. Now we shout resistance, resistance. Let's go, yes we can. These students, some of these, People affiliated with these students put a gun to my chest because they didn't like my line of questioning in 2014 when this was happening. You know who that young man is? Guaido. Juan Guaido. The quote unquote president elect of Venezuela. Next. So he comes from the extreme violent right of Venezuela. Educated in Washington. What's different now? Next. What's different, I would say, is the geopolitical situation, obviously, the correlation of forces in America Latina. You know, there has changed thanks to the Obama Justice Department to help depose uh, governments via the justice system. I was going to write that story, but I'm writing the book. Uh, the domestic correlation of forces inside the United States, the Trump factor, the possibility of actual warfare, very serious when you have people like uh, LDA groups, John Bolton, who have experience taking us into wars, to devastation and decline of the US global and global media. System. That's something very different, even from 2014 to the present. Uh, and the threats and opportunities it opens up. Always know there's an opportunity and there's always an opposition. This seems overwhelming to see, but and there's an overwhelming feeling because they've used overwhelming media force on this right now. It's a, it is a psychological. I would just, I hate to, yeah, I would just correct one thing. I've studied war manuals. War is always psychological. When I saw dead bodies in Salvador chopped up the pieces. It wasn't because they were just vicious. It has to because of, because of the psychological effect. Mm -hmm. As any trauma survivor witness knows, 
wars and its core psychological continues people back to Clausewitz to the present. So next, I want to talk to you a little bit about what's different in terms of full spectrum media warfare, social and traditional. Um, the Pentagon and its allies are very clear on the nature of warfare now in the 21st century. Next, I follow the, you know, I like to, I'm, I geek out on counterinsurgency and stuff, so, uh, you know, I follow the careers of people like Dr. Max G. Manwaring, who I owe a debt of ingratitude for the massive load of trauma he left in my mind in part because of what I saw in Salvador. This is one of the people that helped bring us there. So you have people that have been operating for years, right? And uh, he wrote this oral history, and he's been thoroughly committed to warfare since before Salvador. Next. So Man of Warring more recently wrote this book, Venezuela as an Exporter of Fourth Generation Warfare Instability. So they were studying what Chavez was doing with information, right? And, uh, but they also made some interesting comments that I, I wanted to share with you so that we get in kind of, I was talking about what's different. What's different is clearly their perception of warfare. We must, let me quote this, we must also adapt our approach to the overwhelming reality that just as, that just as the world has evolved from an industrial society to an information-based uh, uh, Society. Society, thank you. So has warfare. The reality of this evolution demonstrates the need for a new paradigm of conflict based on the fact that information, not firepower, is the currency upon which war is now conducted. And go on. So information is at the heart of warfare now. They're very clear. I don't think the left is. We're still thinking just doing a protest is kind of winding down. Next. Uh, it's a video of Maduro talking about guerra me mediática, golpe mediático, right? Um, but I, we don't just see Maduro. This is a friend of mine study that I'll share with people later on the kinds of specific things they're doing that, you know, in terms of information warfare. Next. The only thing I'll say is, I'll stop for a minute, is this. My friend Aaron studies this stuff and geeks out on it like I like to, she's way more than I do. She says, quote, their trends generate billions of impressions each day. The Venezuelan opposition generates billions of trends in information about in support of the opposition. And she says, and this is somebody who actually geeks out on it, I've never seen anything with such a tremendous reach as this Venezuelan opposition hashtag, which is why I've continued monitoring it since I first found it in June 2017. Next. Uh, I wish I could have more time with this is a guy who, uh, Lorenz Saleh, who had a strange and wondrous career as an opposition oh, leader. Yeah. Next. And you know, I would show you, but uh, one has him, he was just in Mexico, and denouncing the Venezuelan government, the Mexican government for not supporting the coup. And he's there as a victim of human rights. And you can go on his Twitter feed and you can see him meeting with presidents, with foreign, foreign uh, ministers with all manner of powerful global players. So you want to understand how these coalitions are built, with people like this. The other YouTube, can, let's, can we share that? Yeah, we could also send it on afterwards. Yeah, this, I just want you to see, so this is a guy who's out there being a victim, public, his job is to be victim publicly. But the context of this guy is that he was part of like death, 
like healing that, that's people. what i was going to show on the video was that yeah. he, let's just the video is that he he was caught off camera basically plotting sniper attacks yes bombings yeah. assassinations and other acts that in this context can only be called what no, no, he's not white though, so it's not terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> Can only be called terrorism, right? But, but he's not a terrorist. He's a public figure. He got a, a Sakharov Human Rights Award. It's astounding that the media has allowed these people to become the voices of next. We'll forward it along. Yeah. Uh, there's the things that they've done: bombing, assassination, drone attack on Maduro, burning black people alive. We're talking about Abuelas and Dientes. Yes. Uh, next. It's a father that I met who's uh, left out of the narrative in 2014. There's his son, uh, Elvis, next. There's the people that are putting the barbed wire, the peaceful opposition, on the recommendation of a, uh, uh, a broke of Venezuela in general, put up barbed wire across the street when I was there. And there's what happened to uh, Elvis. His, he was beheaded by the Venezuelan opposition. Yeah, so he tweeted, like this violent, you know, military guy tweeted instructions on if you wanted to kill um, motorcycle riders, because in Venezuela, most of the working class have motorcycles because they can't afford cars, cars. And this was the result in a wealthy part of town in Altamira, Chacao, um, they put this barbed wire, you can't see it. And then they also put oil on the floor, car oil, um, and then they decapitated a couple of people. The media painted the general as a maverick in the United States, the Associated Press. Because yeah. he was the guy who took a machine gun and hold himself up in his house, yeah. and they turned him into a maverick hero, not even mentioning this. Next. Fake news, we know Rush, I don't want to go into that. Next. Real news, do I need to talk to you about what's happening with the news? We can go to Q&A. And I just want to end on a happy note with Kevin Spacey from 2017. Uh, there he is with Enrique Peña Nieto, who was caught by Forbes, taking an $8 million bonus for promoting Enrique Peña Nieto, saying his government was great. Then you have Kevin Spacey saying, they are on the right side of history. Of the Venezuelan opposition, like Belo Lopez. This is why I got interested in wanting to investigate Belo Lopez, who I found out was uh, connected to all the violent extremist networks. Next. So to conclude, implications, let me put on my strategies hat, arbitrarily and artificially for a moment. I'm a journalist. But if I was a strategist, <laughs> I think there's a clear goal is to stop US intervention. <laughs> I would think, as a strategist, that you need to rally people locally and nationally and network. I would think that you focus on non-intervention, like U.S. Ottoman Salvador used to be our slogan back when, and focus on a clear and simple message, no blood for oil. That was the message of Iran War, very effective, very easy to understand, and it travels into these massive networks that are in your pocket right now, right? Very lightly and easily. And if I was a strategist, I would fight on the streets, but be open to the urgent front and the digital media front. Next. And by the way, uh, back in the day, despite their massive advantages, we defeated the shit out of the US military's uh, army and movement uh, in El Salvador. Uh, 
and in the war for ideas. Thank you. Thank you, Roberto. So, um, in this part of tonight, of, the, of this event, um, like I said, we want to have um, a little bit of time for folks to get together with people next to you to talk about some next steps. Before I actually tell, prompt you to do that, though, um, uh, Roberto talked about um, organizing and mobilizing uh, locally, nationally. Um, just before people leave, or before people get into their groups, I want everybody to know that uh, March 9th, there is a uh, mobilization in San Francisco that's coming up um, that's connected to a national mobilization in DC, which is actually gonna be the following week, March 16th. Uh, but there's, uh, we'll put the link for that event um, on the Facebook page along with other stuff that uh, Roberto put out. Um, so, uh, what we'd like is for folks like two to get together into pairs or threes, something like that, whatever feels comfortable for you all. Um, and we want to prompt you with a couple things. Um, a, you know, do you have more clarity on this issue? And you know, um, what kind of other information do you think is necessary for you to engage sort of in um, resisting U.S. empire and intervention in Venezuela, right? Um, and two, um, how can you uh, think about connecting uh, anti-interventionism into your work um, that you're already doing, right? Uh, or any organizing that you're already doing? Or um, how do you see yourself as being bringing what you have as a capacity, as a skill to kind of the struggle, right? Um, so uh, you see some butcher paper on the wall. I would actually prompt folks to use that if they'd like. Uh, there's markers, I think, uh, and we can pass more out. Um, and then, so we're gonna give you guys about 15 minutes um, to do that until 8.11, and we're gonna give you guys till about 8.25, uh, and then we're gonna bring it back, and we're gonna kind of have more of a dialogue with uh, us up here and you out there to kind of keep the momentum going about how we kind of move from just thinking about all of this to action, right? Um, everybody clear? Yeah, yes. If you haven't um, been able to donate some funds, we'd appreciate it if you can. It helps us keep our programming free and low cost. It helps us gather folks um, for emergency teachings like this or to build classes and to dig deeper onto these issues. We're going to pass the bucket around one more time. If you can give as generously as you can, we'd much appreciate it. Thank you. And there are some chairs on the far side of the room if you need a chair. <laughs> so what we have heard was the uh, resisting the coup in Venezuela emergency teach-in that was put on by the Center for Political Education this past Tuesday. Again, if he would like to see the video and or listen again, please check them out. Their Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash center, the number four, political education. And I'm also going to look up their... Uh, their website right now so folks can go again they put on a lot of great programming we had uh, Rachel Herzing in as a guest I, feel, I believe it was last year it's hard to keep track of time I saw a friend I hadn't seen for a, a while recently and we're walking and uh, I was just like oh yeah it's been a really long year and he was like yeah it's been uh, a month and a half <laughs> and I was like oh yeah I guess we're about a month and a half in and it feels like it's been really long Yes. So if you go to politicaleducation.org, you can find a list of their programs, uh, their staff. They also have internships that are available. Also, if you donate, again, like the the 
programs that they put on are open to the public and they're accessible and that's not true with a lot of places so please if you're able to donate they're a great place to donate to again center for political education which you can find at politicaleducation.org okay so we're gonna take a bit of a music break we should have a guest coming in a little bit later so please do stay tuned and we'll continue on with the music requests that i've i've heard so far from you all so thanks so much for for checking in with the music requests here's some more stevie wonder and we'll, we'll be back in a bit
make us more visible. It's the only way to really make us more visible. We, we, we went through the nice route and we still haven't heard anything. And so finally we got a response. We were told by our own university that it was academic freedom of the professors to teach these classes. Well, if your academic freedom is based in someone else's systematic oppression, then maybe we need to discuss what academic freedom means. And so that's why we're here today. That's why we went and mobilized the amount of people that you see. And that's why we're not going to stop until the contracts are done. A lot of us are scared. We don't want retaliation from, uh, you know, my advisors or from the university or the administration. I've taught at Hopkins for 12 years. And thanks to a tip-off from Teachers and Researchers United, last year I created a petition that got broad support from faculty, administration, staff, grad students, undergrads, alumni, and community members who are all united in calling on this university to end its contracts with ICE. So we need to be loud enough and visible enough for people who haven't heard the message yet to hear the message and for the university to see that we care about this so much that, yeah, we're going to break a rule because we need you to take us seriously and that these contracts will be canceled and will be ended. All right. And welcome back to the weekly review with Roman. <laughs> uh, yeah, we heard some music. Thanks to the folks for suggesting some. We heard the last song we heard was Tank by the Seatbelts. And before that, we heard Go Outside by Colts. And before that, we heard some more Stevie Wonder. And this clip we just played um, was from an article um, from the Baltimore Sun that came out uh, recently. That's February 8th, it looks like excuse me, February 6th, and it was written by uh, Catherine Rents. Uh, Hopkins students and faculty walk out of class to protest universities' contracts with ICE. And there was a video that's in the article as well, so we played the audio clip from that. Students and faculty at the Johns Hopkins University walked out of class Wednesday morning, and this was previous Wednesday, uh, to protest the school's contracts with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Around 150 students marched around campus chanting, Caging children is horrific, JHU is complicit. And JHU hear us shout, we won't stop till until ICE is out. It was the fourth time the group Hopkins Coalition Against ICE had organized an action against the contracts. The complaints began last July when Drew Daniel, an associate professor and director of graduate studies in the university's English department created an online petition calling on the university to end the contracts. Protest organizers said that the contracts make the university complicit in immigration policies that include mass detainment, deportation, and family separation, even as administrators counter that their work with the agency has nothing to do with detention or deportation of undocumented immigrants. I care very deeply about Hopkins, Daniel told the gathering. I cannot ignore this institution anymore as it wanders even farther into a moral abyss. ICE terrorizes black and brown communities. ICE violates the human rights of people it detains. It separates children from their families. Since 2008, the university has earned more than $7 million from 37 contracts with ICE. Ugh. I want to throw up right now all over the board. Ugh. According to government spending data, ugh, ugh. I couldn't even finish the sentence without wanting to throw up. That's how I feel <laughs> about ICE. Ugh. Hopkins has three contracts with the agency totaling more than $1.7 million. The contracts set to expire this year are primarily with the medical school for educational programs that provide emergency medical training and leadership education. Johns Hopkins and the University of Maryland are among six institutions of higher education that have contracts with ICE. 
Hundreds of Hopkins students have participated in previous protests, and more than 2,000 people affiliated with the university have signed the petition calling on Hopkins to immediately end its partnership with the agency. University President Ronald Daniels has rejected the demands of the, the petition, saying the university is protecting academic freedom. And in the article, academic freedom is not in quotation marks, but I feel like it should be kind of like when Nazis protest and they say it's quote-unquote free speech. It's fucking disgusting. Gross. Our specialized training and leadership programs with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, ICE, have no relationship to the enforcement of immigration policies by the current or any other administration. University spokesperson Karen Lancaster said... We have been unequivocal in our public statements concerning the consequences of recent immigration policies that have a clear, direct, and demonstrable impact on members of our university community. Excuse me, uh, demonstrable impact on members of our university community. She wrote that JHU uh, remains committed to international and undocumented students, offers access to students and staff without regard to immigration status, and provides care to immigrant and refugee populations in JHU clinics and hospitals. Lancaster defended the ICE contract, saying the training the programs provide, quote-unquote, ultimately benefit those who interact with the agency. Hmm. Samantha Agarwal, 31, a doctoral student from Ohio, however, said at Wednesday's protest that she found the partnership unconscionable. We believe it sends a violent message towards prospective students who come from immigrant families, towards people of color who work on this campus, who have to be on this campus every day, said Agarwal, who is studying rural development in India. Erini Lambrides, 27, a doctoral student in astrophysics, helped organize the march with other activist groups and questioned the university's quote-unquote academic, there we go, now it's in quotation marks, academic freedom rationale. If your academic freedom is based on someone else's systemic oppression, then maybe we need to discuss what academic freedom means, she said. Matthew Burke, ugh, I'm feeling I'm already going to throw up, a spokesperson for ICE, said in a statement that ICE, fuck, I'm not even going to fucking read a statement because it's fucking bullshit. It's a great thing about having your own show. You don't have to uh, quote law enforcement officials who cause people harm. ICE works primarily on interior enforcement, conducting immigration raids and seizing illegally trafficked narcotics. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection works primarily on the border, operating detention facilities and implementing border related policies such as family separations. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, thanks to the students and the teachers and the folks there, I had no idea that there were seven uh, um, institutions that had contracts with ICE, although it shouldn't surprise, shouldn't surprise us. Uh, thinking of, speaking of folks who have contracts with ICE uh, <laughs> or help out ICE, uh, Amazon did not get their headquarters built in Queens. A lot, there's a lot of organizers who put in to make sure that would not happen. So that's, great news and fuck jeff bezos i feel like i should say that on every show also billionaires shouldn't exist i can't imagine having that much wealth and then not like how do you get to a point where that's more than a person could ever spend in their own lifetime i just don't i don't fucking get it it's a sickness okay there's also an article that i wanted to share uh, from thinkprogress.org american jews must stand with uh, Ilhan Omar, and that was a bit of what I was talking about earlier. Uh, also, there seems to be a lack of discussion that 
anti-Semitism is not the same as anti-Zionism. And so folks really need to not <laughs> confuse the two. So there's an article uh, by Max Berger, again, that's from Think Progress, and it's an op-ed that folks can check out. It came out on February 12th. So the, um, the first line under the headline, uh, the right will always use Israel and anti-Semitism as a tool to destroy left-wing movements, especially when they're led by people of color. So I highly recommend folks check this out. Again, it was uh, came out on Think Progress on February 12th, and it was written by Max Berger. So please do check out this article. Um, we're coming a little bit to the end, um, and unfortunately, I don't know if Shahid will be able to get here in time. Hopefully, we can have uh, Shahid on the show um, soon. Oh, just got an email okay so yeah he's not gonna be able to make it however we will hopefully have him on the show uh in the near future um please check out shahid buttar his uh facebook page and also is really interested in organizing folks to push elected officials especially like democrats leftward so again it's not so much even getting folks elected it's really how do you how do we question these people on on these issues to get them you know talking about it so okay all right so yes it's 146 there's no women's magazine with global val today i'm checking in with val to see if we might be able to play the um the teaching again because i know we had some audio troubles and i think it may have missed a couple of minutes from it and um if we're able to play it for the next hour folks can tune in again and all as well as you know folks who listen to women's magazine which comes on at two o'clock can listen in and hear that i learned a lot and i'm really grateful for all the organizers and activists out there and all the folks and the educators and people out there who really uh put things together and it's really about grassroots organizing these are learning a lot of things that i would not have necessarily learned elsewhere so grateful i always learn a lot and that's one of the things i love about doing the show is it forces me to read articles i don't want to read because i'm like oh this is going to be depressing or frustrating or unnerving and then once i read it i learn something i can see the the patterns and things see the larger picture and how things are connected and also it influences i'm a more of an introvert however if i have conversations with people i can bring up uh, facts and i get that there are some folks who don't believe in facts anymore however it's a way of just you know staying educated and really focusing on the sources that we we hear news from and current events and really having that time to you know understand what we can do uh, actively i feel like what i do with the show for a big part of it i do feel is fairly passive i'm here just presenting some news and at the same time what do we do with this information and i do feel that if more people actually had an idea of what was actually happening instead of all the fear-mongering that has been happening um things would be a lot different and maybe people would be more game to organize and with that what can we do what else can we do what else can i do and i appreciated that at the end of the teaching um or not at the end but after the the panelists spoke we were given an opportunity to meet one another, which is always good too. I recommend getting to know your neighbors. Again, I'm an introvert here. I'm pretty shy. However, if we get to know the people that we live next door or the people that we see every day, we might not know their name. What else can we do just to be real, less reliant on the state and also rest, less reliant on fear and the, the unknowing? Because if we don't know what someone's going through, we can make a lot of assumptions. And sure enough, everyone's going through a struggle right now. So what can we do to help support each other? All right. So that being said, it's almost one fifty. Time to uh, uh, wrap up the show. Oh yeah, so yeah, so my friend Shirley 
big listener of the show and great friend. Thanks, Shirley, for listening in. Um, recommended that we play songs uh, from Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. I've played a few songs already, and so I thought I'd end on this one. Uh, <laughs> and, ha. Ah. And I'm going to uh, get this all set up. Thanks again for listening to Mutiny Radio. Oh, yeah, the comedy festival is coming up. There's a comedy festival. If you like comedy, there's got to be a show for you, for sure. So it's coming up. It's March 1st through the 5th. On March 1st, I'll be doing a show. And we've got a couple comedians who will be, they've signed up to do the show. Uh, Hope that we all have a good time and stuff. I'll talk more about that next week, I think. And so, yeah, so it's been, I think it's the 5th annual. Is it the, already? Oh, goodness. Maybe it's the fourth. Anyway, we've been having the comedy festival here every year. It's every year. It's March 1st through 5th. We've co- comedians come in from all over the country. I think some folks from abroad, too, maybe. I don't don't quote me on that. But we have folks come in from a lot of different places, and we have a comedy festival here. So there's some posters up around town. If you'd like to get a listings of the shows, there's a lot of different themed shows, please check out mutinyradio.fm. There's 50 shows... No, 50 comics. It looks like 15 shows. I'm looking at a... Yes, 15 shows, 50 comics, a lot of people here. So please please do check out. Get your tickets now. It's great live comedy. There's only a few seats available, so get on those tickets. Go get them. And also, thank you for supporting the station. We It's a kind of collective type place. We keep the doors open by paying our dues and folks who support the show. If you'd like to advertise on the show and you're someone I actually support, then sure, totally cool. If you own a small business or you're a small organization or something that is worthy, um, by all means, I'd like to advertise on the show. That'd be great. Get in touch for sure. Also, follow me on Twitter. I very rarely advertise that, but sure, why not? Have a few. <laughs> I'll get a thousand followers one day. At Roman Reimer, you can follow me there. Also, our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. I post a lot of news stories there, some of which I go over on the show. Like Mutiny Radio and like uh, the weekly review on Mutiny Radio as a Facebook page as well. Also, if you'd like to support this show uh, independently, individually, uh, sure. That's that would be awesome there are quite a few folks who are able to throw in uh, a couple bucks a month it means the world to me that folks believe in what we're doing if you go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev anywhere from a dollar a month is greatly appreciated also if you're just listening in if you learn something from the show and bring it up in conversation with people if you tell people about it that's equally important so grateful for all the folks who help out and encourage me. I've been doing this for over five years and um, it means a lot that folks get something out of it. So thank you so much for that. Also, we're finally on Stitcher. Yes, that's right. I took the five minutes <laughs> that I couldn't seem to find over the past few years and put us on Stitcher. So um, I've heard, I'm not on, um, okay, I'm going to promote, right? I'm on my promoting, I'm wearing my promoting jacket. Just kidding. I don't like to promote and I don't have a promoting jacket. However, if you have a, the Stitcher app, that's another way you can listen to this show. Apparently, you can type in, well, first of all, you go to facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. We have a link directly there. So that might be the easiest way to do it. However, if you're on your phone, you can go to Stitcher. And if you type in the weekly review, apparently all one word, it should be the weekly review from Mutiny Radio, I think is how they listed it. I will maybe take another five years to have them clarify the title. However, we are on Stitcher. Type in the weekly review, all one word, and or just check out our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. We have a link there directly to Stitcher. Thanks so much for all your support. Super, super appreciate it. And uh, uh, yeah, we're about to get out of here. So thanks again for listening. And hopefully, remember, no blood for oil. 
still true. Uh, take care, everyone, and have a great week. friendly announcer I have serious news to pass on to everybody what I'm about to say couldn't mean the world's disaster could change your joy and Treasure